everyone. Welcome to Muscle Maven Radio. I'm your Muscle Maven. Glad that you're here. And I am super, super inspired by today's guest, Anya Fernald. I have followed her for a while. I love everything that she does. I've learned so much from her already in the short amount of time that we have interacted and communicated with each other. And I think she's an incredible example for women and men alike about creating companies that are moving the needle in healthier and more sustainable directions, in balancing health and business and family, and in doing her part to teach people about the importance of high-quality, well-raised meat. So she is the founder of Belcampo, and that's a company dedicated to making good meat-buying choices easier. So they've built their own supply chain on 25,000 acres of farmland in California with full ownership of the processing facility all the way through to their retail shops and their restaurants. There's, I believe, nine restaurants around the country. Belcampo also supplies other restaurants and butchers and is continuing to expand in that area, as well as a couple other things that she's going to talk about in the interview. They're basically working to build an alternative meat supply system, something that is much higher quality, much more transparent, and much healthier, which is absolutely revolutionary and is massively needed and really important. So yeah, Anya's doing great things, and she and I get along on a ton of topics, ranging from fitness to obviously meat eating to caring about and understanding and being a part of the food process and cycle. And so I was really honored that she took the time out of her crazy schedule, especially in the midst of the pandemic that we're all dealing with, that is causing companies to completely have to overhaul their processes and and making things a lot murkier for people in every business and every part of the world. And she took the time to chat with me. So I really appreciate that. So let's dive into it. Let's learn a little bit more about the ideal life cycle for the best quality, the healthiest, tastiest protein. Let's learn how innovative companies come into being and become successful. And let's talk about organ meats, obviously, because listen, if you know me, if you've been following this podcast, we got to talk about organ meats. Okay, so let's do it. Let's see how it goes. I hope you enjoy this episode with the amazing Anya Fernald. All right, Anya, thank you so much for doing this from our home, not allowed to be around each other podcast. This is the best we can do. At least we're looking at each other. This is a good start, right? Thank you for taking the time. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And it's so exciting for me too, because having this platform where I get to kind of connect with people online and get to know you a little bit more and think like, okay, we definitely have a lot to talk about. We have a lot in common. This is going to be amazing. And then I get to do that for work, but really it's that I just get to like connect with awesome people and chat with you. So ostensibly this is for work, but I'm just happy that we get to talk for an hour. I'm, I've got lots to ask you. So I'm very excited. Right on. So too, it's like, I never see the meat industry on the front page of anything <laughs> in the past. Unless week, it's like all over, it's always bad news, right? Exactly. But pretty amazing. It's an interesting time to talk about meat because meat. I yeah. Mean, happening. So yeah, yep. So I mean, before we kind of get into, I guess, what's going on sort of more topically, can you kind of just give our listeners a little bit of a background on who you are and what you do first, and then we'll kind of go from there? Sure. I'm Anya Fernald. I co-founded and I run a company called Belcampo, which is the only fully vertically integrated meat supply company in the US. So we have a 30,000 acre ranch in Northern California. We raise seven species commercially. We have our own USDA approved meat plant. And then we sell our products through a group of now six restaurants in California, as well as nationally online 
and via retailers. So we have a number of retail partners where we offer basically premium packed out grass-fed and finished ground beef, et cetera. Our farm and our practices are all 100% regenerative and our farm is certified carbon impact positive. So we actually are a net carbon sequesterer in terms of the way we farm. So I try to offer people a choice in meat that they can feel just amazing about. Okay. I love it. And I read somewhere, I'm taking bits and pieces from like articles that I've read and some research that I've done, that you lived in Italy for a while and you moved back Mm -hmm. home and realized that maybe the quality of some of the things you were eating in the States just wasn't quite as good. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I moved, I was interested in animal agriculture and in agriculture my whole life. And I started to, right after college, I started working as a cheesemaker in Europe. At 22, I moved there and I ended up kind of spinning that in then into a job. I ran a microfinance program in Northern Italy for small scale food producers. Pretty much I stayed there on and off for seven or eight years. And in that time, so I, I went from living a, like a low fat lifestyle as an American college student and growing up in the 90s in California, it was all like, you know, people pounding the big plates of spaghetti with fat free spaghetti sauce and all that craziness. And I went Then from there to living on a a farm in rural Italy, eating like three pounds of cheese and meat a day and just thriving. And it was like completely counterintuitive. I also didn't put it together until years later. You know, I'd been on antidepressants in college. I no longer felt I needed those. I had persistent little things like yeast infections. I stopped getting dry skin. I stopped getting my breath got better. I had cavities disappear. Like I had cavities that were there before and then I went back and then I was like, I don't know, we don't have them anymore. So there was like this crazy thing that happened with my body and my wellness that was really, basically I went on a pretty like a high protein diet, which I had never done before. It was incredible. And I just was so happy and I'm like, I don't want to leave. So I, I stayed there and by the time I was 30 and living there, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to move back or else I'm going to just become an Italian and just live here my whole life. It doesn't sound too bad to me, but... <laughs> Well, I'm very entrepreneurial. And as an entrepreneurial person, it's a, not a great place to be an entrepreneur. Italy is amazing culturally, but the reason that everything's so beautiful and intact is that not much new happens, right? So that's kind of what I started to realize is that I had incredible quality of life, but for my own ambition and desire to create change and to be an agent of change in the world, I wasn't going to be able to scratch that itch. And also by that time, I was married to an Italian I was on the path to being there for a long time. And frankly, the women's rights, you know, it's kind of cool to have mandatory one year maternity leave paid. It's also not very cool if you want to succeed, because if they know you're going to have kids, you're like anywhere from one to four years that you're going to be off paid. So your job prospects are really limited. So some of these things that you think are amazing in terms of women's rights are actually cut against you. Mm -hmm. And I'm speaking to what it was, you know, when I was there, I don't, I don't know how things have changed now. So don't take that as a current situation, but I evaluated a number of things like that and just said, I I want to go back to the U S and also the world is changing. You know, in the U S things were rapidly shifting. So I moved back in the mid two thousands. I immediately had a major change in my health for the worse. I just kind of continued on the rhythm that I was on, which is a high meat, high protein, high fat diet. And I gained 30 pounds. I became kind of borderline depressed. It's like this massive shift. And I'm super active and I always have been. And it didn't feel like I was eating anything different. There's definitely the more of availability, like lots of snacking and snack foods all the time in the US. But it was this massive shift in my body. And so I just kind of observed that. And I thought, well, meat's the vector, you know, meat's what I love to eat. I then started buying my own whole cows and whole pigs. This is back in 2005 and six, so very early. And I set up a 
CSA is my first venture into meat was a CSA to facilitate people buying direct from farms because I bought my first cow and did not realize that it was that much meat. And I had <laughs> cows to are pretty big. <laughs> yeah, it was not like Anya's triumph of, of good plant and thinking things through. But I was eager to get good meat. So, you know, that got my health back on track. I realized in the US, you know, it's unlike living in Italy, it just you have to be more cautious. And I went my journey, like I think many of us, you know, I used to be casual about meat. And before I started the meat CSA and got into the business and things, I, I actually would sort of be casual and like, I'd grab a chicken Caesar in the airport or whatever it might be. And within two or three years of coming back here, I realized, unless I know exactly where it comes from, I'm just not eating meat. And people are surprised. So I'm, I was vegetarian for nine years. I was vegan for a while. I know how to do it. If I can't find product that feels good for me or that I know exactly where it comes from, I will not eat even the eggs, nothing. I just now know how detrimental that profile is for my body. And I have too much empathy for animals, right? So I'm actually really, really rigorous. I'm like, if there's not my meat or somebody analogous to Belcampo, and there's a number of small farms that do a great job with regenerative clean practices, I just will be vegan. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. First of all, do you speak Italian? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. When I was 22 and I, my first job, nobody spoke English. <laughs> That's so a good way to learn. learn. <laughs> I know. It was so much fun though. It's so great to have that in your back pocket that, you know, so I'm fluent and cause I, I spoke it for my work, you know, I lived there seven years and full on. Yeah. That's amazing. It's such a beautiful language. And I know this is off topic. I'm just asking because that's one of my sort of quarantine projects. I've been on and off like learning Italian, like with Duolingo mm-hmm. and stuff like, so I grew up in Canada. So I kind of always had a little bit of French happening cause it's two sure. official languages. And since they're both kind of yeah. romance languages, they're sort of similar, but I kind of never like got into French and I just find Italian more beautiful. So I've been learning it. So I might be in your DM speaking Italian now that I know that you can <laughs> you can speak it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, so now let's talk about the process of, you know, you're moving back to the states and you're kind of having this experience and you're learning and what made you, I mean, you said you're entrepreneurial, so what was the process like of starting this company that's now massive and huge and growing? Talk about how We're a big fish in a very small pond. <laughs> so I don't think, well, we're, you know, massive not yet. Meat industry is so consolidated. So, you know, a company like mine does one hundredth of what a real player in the meat industry does. That said, we've succeeded in scaling far beyond what most of the types of farms who practice our type of practices have done. Right. right? So kind of like we're a, we're a medium size in a business that's characterized by very big players and very small players. Right. You know, I started and sold two businesses when I came back. One was a produce distribution company. One was an events company, food events. And I also produced an event that got me a lot of sort of notoriety in the press for kind of having it pulled something off, which was Slow Food Nation back in 2008. So after I did Slow Food Nation, I got like a call from the CEO of Whole Foods at the time, Walter Robb. And he called me on my cell phone. He said, I just want to give you a pat on the back. You did something really incredible. You should look at leadership for, you know, what you want to do and you've got potential. And I got a similar call like that from a really lovely gentleman who runs a massive cookware company called Meyer Company based out of China. And they both have been sponsors for the event that I put on. So I kind of got this nudge and it felt like, and it was the recession as well, right? The 2008 and things crashed right after that event. So I didn't want to start another business at that point. I just thought, let me dig into 
what I have available to me, which is a great network of potential resources around clients, et cetera, a great generalist knowledge of food. I started a consulting company and I ran that for about three years. It was, you know, five or six employees. We scaled up. We started out with just me and one employee in in the end of 2008. And that business is really where I gestated the idea of Belcampo. So my business partner, Todd Robinson, hired me as a consultant in 2009, 2010. And initially I was advising him on, on other stuff he was planning on doing with a farm that he had that was meat related, but it was more about fine dining on this farm. And then we developed the concept together and I really pitched him on Belcampo as an idea in the very beginning of 2011. Um, and then he funded my company to develop a business plan that I presented in 2012, beginning of 2012. We started the company in the middle of 2012. From there, you know, the first thing I did was build the slaughterhouse. So we bought land for the slaughterhouse. I managed that build, got this new, the first restaurant opened shortly thereafter. It was a kind of a fast ride from there. And then we were early to market with a product that I knew was the right thing. My business partner totally believed in, but you know, we opened in Marin County and it was kind of like a big fat nothing for a few years, you know, because we're there in Marin with this super leading edge product. I remember the first store opening that I did, I had like tote bags printed that said, eat the fat. Like I was so into eating fat, but this is 2012 and there wasn't the broader consciousness around fat forward, around high protein, around clean fat, around omega-3s. So we kind of had the hardcore crazies, like I consider myself a hardcore crazy, so I can say that. But we had those guys, and most of the time were guys, I'd say, but people like me who were like, this is the way I thrive. You know, I can feel a difference in my body when I eat liver. I'm happier when I eat liver once a week. I can feel, I feel great. I have times where I crave marrow. I think once you get into that vibe of eating whole animals, you kind of don't want to go back, right? I started realizing that unfortunately my kind of marketing, which was very radical initially, kind of had to pivot. And we started to pivot towards luxury, which was an interesting play because we're not, people think luxury and a steak, they think a big fatty wagyu. Mm-hmm. Right. So my marketing, though, from 13 to 15 or 16 was really about being an, an authentic luxury item. And it was kind of OK, but not great. But we started to get this momentum where the movements are to grow. And by 17 and beginning of 18, I'm like, OK, we can do this. We can pivot back to the radical roots of this brand, which is really where my heart is. You know, and my heart is in revolutionizing meat and changing the system for the better. It's the best win-win because, and I'm a radical at heart. I want to see the system break and change. And I want it to be not something that I'm just catering to the wealthy. I want it to be something where people are realizing that they have to put more share of wallet against this if they want to be healthy. Mm-hmm. So that whole pivot really started, I'd say, beginning of 18, we started to market aggressively to the audience that's more interested in health. And at that time, I started to come out more on my own social and on Belcampo is about like my own radical. I don't think it's that radical, but like the wellness practices that I do, we started to really push that in our company culture and everything just got better. It was like we met our market timing. And so by the beginning of 19, we started to see this some momentum. And then the beginning of this year, pre-COVID, and we can talk about what's happening for us in COVID, but we really started to hit an upswing. And it had to do with actually saying, you know what? I love culinary great cook and I've written a cookbook and love all that stuff. But really, I don't feel like the culinary community truly puts the values that they should on provenance. And I think the wellness community, for lack of a better word, gives a shit. And what I was disillusioned because I came initially from sort of the culinary fine dining world. And I just would see it again and again. It's like, wow, where'd you get that pork? Where I was always, you know, judging. I was a judge on Iron Chef for years and 
they'd be like, oh, we want a sustainability person. I'd be like, cool, where are you getting the meat from? And they're from whatever, Creekstone Farms. And I'm like, that's not a farm. <laughs> you know, like, it was again, the same conversation again and again. I'm like, wow, I just feel like I'm, and I also look at the physicality of that culture was like, eat until you get sick and drink until you get sick. And then wake up and live another day. And it's like, yo, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want company culture to, for, I run a restaurant company. I don't want everybody drinking and that women feel uncomfortable. And it's a, it's an unsafe environment. I started to really think about like, which, which corner of the pool do I want to play in? And it was clear to me that wellness. So like little things in my company, I never drink out of restaurants and make a point of that. We never have alcohol at company events in any meaningful way. We're a different type of restaurant company. And the shifts have just been making those changes throughout the company have been really magical in terms of how people feel taken care of. Mm-hmm. And then also how our customer understands and cares about our values. It was a long-winded response. No, I love it. I'm just going to let you go. I mean, so I have some questions about some of these practices that make Belcampo different. And one of them I wanted to go back to, you were talking about sort of being a big fish in a small pond and there's, there's like tiny farms and then there's these big companies. But how scalable is what you're doing? Like, obviously you are kind of a major player in this very niche world that you're in. But one of the arguments that I think that people make for meat eating in general is that there's too many people on the planet. There's, we can't sustain this. It's not good for the planet because we're all eating too much meat and there's no way that we can all support these sort of more expensive and more labor intensive practices that produce this healthier, more ethical meat. So how scalable is what you're doing? Like, can you continue to grow in a way that is meaningful in terms of reaching more people? I think it's two-sided. With the current consumption paradigm, no. I mean, but we throw away close to half the meat we produce in America. Okay. So we raise animals in torture. We kill them in cruel situation. We give them chemicals that suppress their microbiome, that make them live through having the worst diet possible for their bodies. You know, look at cows, like they have these big stomachs for digesting grass. We give them this nutrient dense corn and sugar. We feed cows sugar to gain weight quickly. And then they're so sick from this maladaptive diet that they have to be on prophylactic antibiotics to function, right? So we put animals through that and then we throw it away, okay? We use so few of the cuts of the animal in a, in a smart way. I'm one of the few companies that produces like Flatirons and Denver's and Picanhas, the vets. These are beautiful cuts of meat, strip steaks, right? Some things you see in commerce, but they're not super well-known because in broad industry, it's a hell of a lot easier and cheaper to just take the racks, the loins, which have your ribeyes in New York's, and take the rest of it and grind it, you know, and process it. So you have effectively a model that's been amazing at generating really cheap product, cheap nutritionally and cheap in terms of dollars, right? And cheap in terms of the environment, right? It's cheap on every front. But that has coached us as a society to consume it as if it's a cheap product. Yeah. And so the question is, I know this as an American, like if I have people coming over and I'm serving them food, right? Like, let's say I'm throwing a buffet party. How many types of meat am I going to serve? Is it going to be one or three? Am I going to have just enough for everybody or am I going to have way more? In our own day-to-day choices, we culturally have a number of habits that are, am I going to serve meat to people that challenges them, that has a story? that tastes different, that, or am I going to serve them exactly what they know? Yeah. We've been to go down a certain road. We make choices every day that support a certain style of meat eating. I get this question all the time because my kids eat marrow and liver and 
drink bone broth. And like my kids are these crazy omnivores and, and my parents DM me all the time on, on Instagram and say, how, how'd you get your kids like that? And I say, hunger is a really good motivator. Hunger makes you have an appetite for everything. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm not going to keep my kids hungry and then say, hey, eat the marrow bone. It's just like when we have dinner and I'm serving marrow bones, that's all they have. Yep. And have a vegetable and there's a starch and they can have whatever they want. But like, there's a way to structure things where you facilitate enthusiasm. Same thing goes for like seasonal eating. You know, seasonal eating has been shown to have all these health benefits. There are things that we are exposed to in the springtime that will have a cyclical effect on our body. And also in traditional cultures, you came out of effectively a period of during the year in the wintertime, you eat lots more fermented foods with this heavy probiotic load. In the springtime, you eat lots of wild food with a really high antioxidant load. In the summertime, you have a lot of high sugar foods, right? And in the fall, you have high starch foods. So there's a cycle to the year. But now we're like, you know what? We're going to cut out the part of the year where we have all the fermented foods and the wild high antioxidant foods. And we're just going to focus on the time of the year where we have all the sweetie stuff and all the starchy stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, there's still fruits and vegetables, but they were things that we had for like a month before, yeah. right? So the same approach on meat, you know, we used to have fresh beef was a real rarity because beef is very large and difficult to refrigerate and keep. So you'd have cured and fermented meats like salami and ham all year long, potentially, and then fresh meat, you know, like so there's a cycle and a rhythm to things. And so in certain times of the year, you only ate the lardo because that's what all you had left, right? Or the chitlins or whatever it would be. And, you know, we ate a heck of a lot more collagen because for like six months of the year, we were just eating the stuff that's very collagenous. And then the fresh striated mussels were a real treat that we got very specifically in the fall when we were doing fresh harvesting. There's that difference of like looking at at me as a seasonal product and just thinking more generally about this like continual abundance we have it's led to overconsumption of a lot of things and different consumption patterns of a lot of things that's created problems in the environment. You know, in the same way that you could say, yeah, you know, watermelon is super sustainable when you have it for the month of September when it grows naturally and you eat all you want. It's fine for your body and fine for the environment. If all of a sudden you need to have cubed watermelon in your refrigerator every single month of the year, or your kids will lose it. Yeah. That's where you have a huge carbon footprint, right? A huge carbon footprint. So I really challenge that paradigm. Mm-hmm. I challenge the paradigm. In my house, we just don't have that stuff when it's not in season and kids are healthy and nobody freaks out and there's no tantrums. Like you can you can get there. Obviously you're not gonna do that in Minnesota or something. You know, like it's it's easier in California too. But there's this idea of what we define as the non-negotiables that is actually a total paradigm decision that we've made culturally. Mm-hmm. And you take a step back and look at those non-negotiables. It's like, no, I've locked into a paradigm that sucks for animals, sucks for the planet, sucks for personal health. Then you can take a step back and look at things more rationally. When you do that, I think a lot of there's a lot more optionality for us. Yes. And I, I love that you mentioned feeding some of these atypical cuts or pieces to your kids and how do we get kids to eat these things? Because as you know, one of the things that I think you and I share a passion with is this sort of no, true nose to tail approach to eating and eating the nutrient dense parts of the animal and eating organ meats and things like that. And that's something that I feel really, really strongly about. And I talk about it a lot. And so a big conversation, a big question that I get a lot is 
how can you eat these things and not be grossed out? Or how can I make it so that it doesn't, it doesn't taste gross? Or how can I make my kids eat this? Or how can I eat like this? Because I never did. And my response is always, I mean, I didn't grow up. I grew up in, again, sort of Eastern Canada. I grew up with very typical sort of traditional American food. Like I grew up drinking skim milk and, and eating like pork chops and white bread and stuff like that. Like I wasn't really exposed to a lot of these kind of more interesting cuts. And through my own sort of personal journey of just sort of discovering a love of food and different cuisines and just being open and willing to try new things. And also being similar to you where I just feel a very strong desire and move towards a meat centric sort of diet. That's just physically what I have always kind of moved towards. But I try to, I think that one of the important things is like you said, it's sort of like exposure. It's like normalizing. It's just showing people a different way. You don't have to have eaten a certain way to then move forward in a different way. And you don't have to look at these things like they're extreme just because they're unfamiliar to you. Because eating a nose to tail diet is not extreme for many, many cultures around the world currently, and hasn't been throughout the history of humanity up until very recently. And it's again, when you, you know, you speak to like looking at it sort of rationally and pragmatically, like it seems silly to think that eating this cut of an animal is perfectly appropriate and okay and nothing to sneeze at and then like a different part of the animal is somehow terrifying and extreme and weird it's like the animal is being butchered for you one way or the other let's look at some different just some different ways of looking at things like you can open up to a whole world of deliciousness and nutrient density and you talked about eating liver and like feeling it nourish you and that's not BS, I, you know, because I do this stuff too. I'm like, I'll make my like liver pate or have some beef liver, or whatever, and I can feel it. Like I feel it nourishing me. And there's that's something that you don't get from grocery store chicken breasts or whatever it is that you're eating, you know. And I think just having a little bit of that open mind and being willing to try things. Like anybody who has had bone marrow <laughs> knows that it's way more delicious than almost anything else that you can get from an animal. So, but it's just scary to people because they aren't exposed to it. So I think this is all just my roundabout way of saying that I think one of the really important things that you're doing and that a lot of us are doing on our own sort of micro level is just trying to put it out there in a way that isn't look at me being extreme eating a heart or if you don't eat nose to tail you're an idiot but it's just like look here's another way here's another option here's another thing to try you know I think that's important yeah it's interesting to me that there's pushback against those but I also think the industrial agricultural system is particularly poorly designed to deliver delicious awful Mm -hmm. so I also do put it on the current system it's again, it's optimized for creating lots of cheap steaks and cheap burgers and cheap pork shoulders, right? And sausages and chicken breasts, right? But organs hold their filtration functionality in the animal's paramount. That's what they do, right? And they filter toxicity, right? They filter heavy metals in the body, for example, is, is carried in your liver. So if you have animals that are, um, like in the case of beef, it is a common supplement for fiber for feedlot beef because feedlot beef have stomach issues because of the high density calories that they eat. So you add shavings of plastic to their feed to break it up and make it easier on their system. That shaving of plastic, that's got BPAs and all sorts of stuff in it. So where does that end up in the filtration system of the animal? So the organ is like the it's the whip uh, end of the whip, right? The tail end of the whip. Like it's a uh, it's taking the brunt of a lot of this damage that's being wrought on the animal throughout its life is ending up in the viscera, mm-hmm. in the lymph system and the soft tissues. So it's a particularly poor representation. So and then the other thing is that organs are very delicate. 
they suffer, they have to be handled carefully. I don't just mean like in terms of the whole culture. I mean, actually physically they can yeah. rupture really easily. They're soft tissue. They don't have muscle. There's no striated exterior muscle on it. There's actually no fat cap that encircles it. So apart from the heart, which is pretty robust and it's just a big muscle, the rest of it needs a really light touch. So again, you got plants that are processing thousands of animals an hour. That's just not going to function well. What happens then is that you have a fairly high kind of like toxic load in the organs that are produced. They're kind of handled badly. And when the organs, in my experience, when animals' organs are healthier, the putrefaction risk is a lot lower. And I basically, you know, I've seen rumens inside of the stomachs from cows that are on a grass-fed diet. They smell kind of like your compost pile. Mm-hmm. Like when in our slaughterhouse, like you see them open up and it's got grass in it and it smells not unpleasant. Earthy. You know, earthy. Yeah. And you see them in, from grain-finished animals from feedlots and it's black and kind of greasy. The look of it, it smells really rough. There's a similar thing, you know, like there is a, my question too, is people are, are squeamish about organs, but they're also squeamish because probably the experiences they've had have not been very positive mm-hmm. because when we walked away from a, what's called extensive and regenerative style of agriculture and went to the efficient system, organs were one of the things that we lost in that bargain. That was one of the opportunity costs for us. I think that people don't appreciate it in part because they've been serve such a low quality product in the same way that I think for a while, a long time, I, I'd have to be like, damn it, why do people like take chicken and put all this junk on it and put all these different sugary marinades? And then if you actually taste a chicken breast from a regular grocery store, it's like, oh, now I get it. Yeah, of course. And I've actually did that. I did a recipe for liver yesterday for my Instagram feed. And then I was like, you know, what? I'm going to have to make that more a little more complicated because I tend to make stuff so simple because my products are really clean. And so it's like my recipes for like syrup and ghee or something or an animal fat and then put like some really salt nice on it <laughs> and lemon and it's yeah. like it tastes delicious. And then I realized, well, to make this more applicable on you, you need to add something more to it because when you can't get the quality proteins, everything has to get more complicated. Yeah. So I do think the question on organs, there's a mentality of fear around them, but it's also because the product taste quality has not been there. Yeah. No, I 100% agree. You were speaking earlier about some of these sort of like factory processes, and it's like giving me the chills the way that most of the animals in this country are being treated and slaughtered and managed. And I would love for you to kind of talk a little bit more about how Belcampo does it, because when I was reading about it, you know, I'm hearing sort of the same kinds of words that I, I hear a lot when I read about this stuff, which is organic and humane and regenerative. And I'd love for you to kind of speak, especially about this regenerative part and what that really means for your organization. But also you talk about stuff like natural impregnation and mothering and weaning and all that stuff. And that's something that I don't actually hear much about in the conversation around sort of organic and humane farming. So if you'd kind of speak to all of that, that would be great. Sure. So let's start with regenerative. Regenerative means agriculture that leaves the earth richer than it was before you started. It's very easy to track the metrics for that. It has to do with carbon sequestration in the soil and the percentage of organic matter in the soil. So it's not just a theory. It's actually something that you can pretty regularly track and and see how you're doing. Conventional agriculture is extractive. So it's, again, optimized for efficiency. So it's doing something really well. But the way it works is that you will plant a crop to feed an animal And you'll do that by disking the soil, plowing it, which releases a lot of carbon. You'll then put seeds in it. And the soil that you're farming is typically 
fairly impoverished because you've been on an intense cycle of production for many years running. And so you'll have to add nitrogen-based so petroleum-based fertilizers to that soil. Those fertilizers then are complemented by pesticides, which reduce the insect load and things, but also further impoverish the soil. So the most common pesticide in America, Roundup, which is, you know, glyphosate, which is very, has a lot of negative human impacts, unfortunately. Glyphosate is also known to completely decimate the microbiome of the soil. So just like the microbiome in our body, soil has has a vibrant microbiome when it's healthy, glyphosate kills the microbiome of the soil. So it kills the nematodes, it kills the little roots, all that system breaks down. You read about the floods and things in the Midwest, right? These massive floods and erosion. That's because the soil is so impoverished after cereal extractive farming that it has no skeleton. Yeah. It's the same way as if you're taking antibiotics and there's something else running around like a flu you're going to get it then right we all know that thing it's like where you get an infection after you've taken antibiotics because your own microbiome is weakened right so regenerative is an approach where you're paying it forward your yields are lower but you're leaving the soil richer and the way you do that is through perennial pastures which means that we don't reseed every year and till so you never till and the only way you add more vitality is that you can do what's called a no-till drill. So it's like a punches holes in the ground and drop seeds in it to add another species mixed to your grass. So regenerative also involves typically livestock, um, which are really great natural fertilizers. Poop and pee from animals in massive quantities is totally devastating for the environment. Think about it if in a city, everybody went to the bathroom in one bucket, right? It would be pretty disgusting after a while. But when you have it diffuse and all going through a system and distributed, it's not going to, we don't smell manure or sewage in our homes, right? It's going elsewhere. So that's not exactly an analogy there. But when you look at these vast lagoons of manure that we see from overhead, manure in and of itself and urine is not toxic for the environment. When it's all in one place, it is the way that our animals are raised, we're not keeping them confined. All their waste is going to that one confined spot and then being washed into one big lagoon. It's just being deposited continually on the earth, but spread out in a way that the earth can actually take advantage of the nutrient load. The reason that those sewage spills kill off ecosystems isn't because they have like a pesticide in them. It's actually they have too high of a nutrient load, which kills ecosystems as well. Huh. So that's when you have a lagoon spill, it's like because there's so much natural nitrogen, right? So the nitrogen that we're depositing is naturally coming from manure. In chemical agriculture, it's coming really from the animal's own nitrogenous urine and, and manure. So there's a, you know, I think about regenerative as kind of think about it for yourself, Ashley, if you're like, oh my God, I've got this like insanely busy month. I'm just going to sleep three hours a night take caffeine pills and crank it out. How are you going to feel after that month compared to your life? Okay, I'm going to take two months to do this. Yeah, I'm going to work out every morning. You know, it's like it, it, there's a way you can get it all done either way. Think about how you feel afterwards and what you're prepared to tackle after scenario A versus scenario B. So regenerative approach is like leaving yourself ready for the next challenge, leaving the earth enough natural fertility to thrive. And the way we do that is kind of akin to people are familiar with like rotational cropping, mm -hmm. right? You have different sequence of crops and that increases fertility. So we do the same thing. We're rotating animals through and they're low density. So we're not having like a thousand animals on an acre densely packed. We're having you know them spread out and we typically have about one animal unit per acre. And available acres is usually three acres per cow per year. Okay. That's the primary difference on regenerative. In terms of the specifics on the individual species too, the seven species we raise, we look at evolutionary diet 
natural mothering and natural mating as kind of key touch points to how do we create an environment where animals thrive. You know, I really do think of Belcampo as an animal wellness company trying to create a system where animals thrive. And that's to the benefit of human wellness and to the benefit of our animals quality. So what's that look like is you know, if you look at evolutionary diet, we talk much about that. The cows that are on grain are effectively in an inflammatory response, right? Because their bodies are so poorly adapted to digest that nutrient-dense food with their five stomachs. You know, they're designed to extract nutrition from really, really fibrous, grassy feed. If we look then at mating, that that's really just natural mating. So using bulls and boars to breed our females. And that's different. You know, the, that mostly has to do with how you cause the animals to ovulate and how you monitor their ovulation. So when you're artificially inseminating, you have to induce ovulation with hormones in the same way that you would like if you're doing IVF or something. So it's a more chemical, more invasive process for the animals. And also I think just inherently more stressful in the case. And then of course the downside is that you have a slightly lower yield, right? In the natural mating. So in the natural mating, what we're doing is we pregnancy check the animals. And then if we have a, a heifer or a female calf that doesn't get pregnant for two years running, then she will turn into meat, right? That's, I mean, we obviously are calling on animals that prove to be infertile, but broadly it's just a slightly slightly lower success rate, but we avoid the use of chemicals to induce ovulation. In terms of natural mothering, the way that that shows up is we are really just attentive to the weaning process. So we wean our animals rather late and we set up their pens and their enclosures to facilitate contact with their moms even after they are weaned. So when in a conventional operations, once the animals are weaned, they go away somewhere else to a fattening operation. Be they pigs or lambs or beef, they come off the milk, they go right off to fattening. And that's like in the, are you familiar with the cow herds or in, uh, in, in cattle country, it's like a cow-calf operation where they produce moms and they drop the calves. And then they have basically fattening and stalker operations, which is where they're put into a pre-feedlot or a feedlot to gain weight. In our operation, they're kept adjacent to their moms. We'll put a low voltage electric fence between them, but they can still maintain contact with their moms. And it's just less emotionally stressful for the calves. And then they're not moved to finishing, which is all naturally, of course, on grass until many months later. Okay. So that's just kind of speaking more to you're doing things sort of the slower, but better and more sustainable and more humane way, really, in in every facet of this. Yeah, you have to think about the kind of through line to human bodies and issues is so direct to me, you know, because in conventional operations, animals go through premature puberty and their secondary sexual characteristics develop very young. They gain weight rapidly and they're ready for market at 16 months. This is the case of beef. In our operation, they're ready for market at 26 months. Their puberty, it's just like so analogous to what we do in our society now, where you have kids go through puberty much, much younger than they used to, mostly because of this availability of calories and, and stress. You know, stress causes early onset puberty. Then they're fed this high intensity diet. They become effectively we raise animals to be obese yeah, and we share a lot of our DNA with these animals. And then obesity is a pandemic in the U S I'm just always amazed. And I know that there are that the science of how you connect those and demonstrate that with data. I don't know how that is done, but that to me seems like something really crucial because I, I look at, we're trying to solve for obesity, even with coronavirus, we're effectively trying to solve for obesity. That's the question. And all the animals that we raise in this country in the conventional system is effectively 
obesity. It's early onset puberty followed by a high intensity diet. You know, it's, it's a, the connection there is just so obvious to me. Yeah. They're eating the same way we are and they're having the same results, the same negative health impacts we are. I mean, it couldn't be more clear. And it's actually truly like an inflammatory diet. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's also amazing too, the body shape I've seen our pigs carcasses next to conventional pigs carcasses and conventional pigs will actually have much more of a belly the gut. There's like certain things about the way that they gain weight that's also very typical of like what's considered an inflammatory response, yeah. you know, in terms of causing more adipose fat. It just and more extra, what's it called? Like the intra organ fat, right? Mm-hmm. The stuff that's really unhealthy for you. They'll have a lot more of that. It's really amazing to me. There's connections there. But, you know, all I'm trying to do is to create something where people who are like woke to these issues and understand and get these connections. There's a place where they can find something that answers, I hope, all, if not at least many of their concerns. And then I'm looking around waiting for more and more science and nutrition to align around some of these parallels that I see really clear right now with animal ag and and some of these endemic societal issues around food and body that we have in the U.S. Okay, everybody, just a few minutes to tell you about Ancestral Supplements. Has there ever been a company that speaks more to my soul? I don't think so. These guys are very on board with the nose-to-tail movement, which, as you know, is something I'm quite passionate about. The concept that eating the whole animal, guts and all, is the healthiest and most sustainable, natural way to do things. They also know that maybe it isn't the most practical thing in the world to eat kidney and brains and liver all day. So although I'm trying to get you to eat the real stuff as much as possible, and I think they would agree that that is the most healthy way to do it, the the natural, less processed version, they have conveniently put together these desiccated pill, basically animal superfoods in pill form for you, all grass-fed, you know, just for those of you who aren't exactly ready to eat a tongue sandwich yet. And no, that's not me being dirty. I literally made a buffalo tongue sandwich the other day and it was delicious, okay? But I'm, I'm getting off track. Anyway, they have a huge range of offerings. They have products like beef liver, beef heart, kidney, bone marrow, tallow, collagen, even some stranger things like lung and trachea. And honestly, I could just keep naming organs, but I think you get the point. I'm one of those people who actually eats the stuff, the real organ meat, but when I'm not eating it due to either lack of availability or time or convenience, if I'm traveling, all of these things, I am supplementing with these products. And look, I'm knocking on wood here, but I haven't had a cold in years. I enjoy pretty robust health. My blood markers are good, and I believe that that is in part due to my very nutrient-dense diet that features a lot of animal products. So if you want to give their stuff a try, go ahead, tell them I sent you. Seriously, if you send them an email or message them on social media, they will get right back to you and answer your questions. They're awesome like that. So go check them out on Instagram at Ancestral Supplements. The website, of course, is ancestralsupplements.com. I'm going to put all of this in the show notes for you. And as always, the discount code for my friends is MuscleMaven. I recommend starting with either the beef organs complex or the beef liver because you're just going to get the most bang for your buck nutritionally, but they have all kinds of options that can, that may help address specific challenges or imbalances you are dealing with. So go on the website and kind of do your own research, check things out. But uh, I encourage you to jump on the meathead bandwagon with me and just uh, give them a shot. Let me know what you think. And that's it. Now back to this amazing interview I just interrupted. 
I was speaking with another regenerative farmer recently and talking about sort of the challenges that they face. And of course, even just like the day-to-day running of an operation that takes so much more work and money and time and all of these things, and then sort of communicating their message to the world and trying to educate and get that information out. And, you know, she was saying that the bigger sort of adversary you would think oftentimes it's like the vegan industry or the anti-meat industry. And she's saying that oftentimes it's actually just the conventional meat industry that's proving to be a bigger adversary or challenger to what you're trying to do because they stand to to lose the most from somebody like you gaining a bigger sort of foothold. What do you find to be the challenges in your work in terms of growing, but also just getting the right, helpful, useful information out to consumers? Having social media is a huge game changer. I mean, the rise of social media has made my company possible. And I don't even sell that much on e-com, you know, like we're mostly restaurants and butcher shops. And But the rise of being able to connect directly with people with integrity has shown the difference between my company and other meat companies. Smart consumers can just look at the content and be like, oh, this is a real thing. And this is a lot of messages. You know, I think it's just very easy to parse. So that's, I think, in terms of challenges, a challenge had been to share authenticity. You know, I operate in an industry that's characterized by opacity. It's characterized by opacity to the degree that my industry lobbied successfully to make it illegal to have cameras inside of meat plants. What industry does that? It's called the ag-gag law. I mean, it's insane that that is, and I get it, it's disturbing to see animals in processing, but the reason they did that is it was like, let's double down on opacity and not on integrity, guys. I also, I tend to not really, I don't worry much about conventional ag. I'm a small, small player. I'm really speaking to a very specific group of consumers that are raising their hands and asking for this. But if it weren't for my ability to tell my story directly, and we don't have like a spectacular social media following, but it's just been, it's been huge for me because I've been able to, I love it too. When I get an, an email or a DM on Instagram, I had a customer who was angry and she said, you know, I don't, I don't get any giblets in my chickens. And I bought five chickens and I, my chickens are expensive. You know, expensive chickens, like $130 of chickens that she bought. And, and she didn't get giblets. And I was like, oh my gosh, well, first off, I'll totally reimburse you if you're unhappy, but here's why I can't do giblets. You know, we are regulated by the USDA where we you know explain the whole issues that we have as a small processor. And she's like, thank you so much. I don't want to refund. I've been making broth out of them and it's so spectacular, even without the giblets that I'm actually really happy. So it was like this, but the chance to engage directly with people like that is magical for me because I can actually tell and people are like, wow, I connect with one of the owners and she gave me a whole story on why it wasn't them just being cheap, not putting the giblets in, but what's going on with them on a regulatory capacity that limits their ability to do that. Yeah. So that direct consumer connection, because for me, it's almost like back when the ag-ag law happened, I, I really wanted to just put a live feed into our slaughterhouse to say, this is what's up. We are here. And of course, that would have just been poking the tiger. But, you know, I, I don't feel any particular, you know, I've seen in some alternative industries, very tactical, targeted efforts to take down people. I've definitely gotten some, you know, negative outreach from people in the cattle industry asking me to play nice, saying, hey, just because I got a specific request, it was a very lovely woman who lives on a feedlot. And she says, you know, I live on a feedlot. I know it's not for everybody, but I don't understand why it's not a rising tide raises all boats. And I say, we're all part of the beef industry. Let's all be in this together. And, you know, my response is, I'm actually in a different industry. Yeah. You know, it's a very different, I have different inputs. I have different outputs. 
the fact that we both are selling steaks is almost immaterial. We're such radically different businesses. So I've gotten a little bit of that, but I, I think it's just like, as long as I can talk directly to my consumers and I really try to focus on the positive messages of what we do, because I mean, right now with the plants being shut down, we're getting requests to talk about what's wrong with Tyson. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I actually don't know. I've never been to a Tyson plant. I have no idea. You know, I've read the same articles that we all have, but I don't have any opinions about it. I can just say, here's what I've done. And it's, I try in general, like, let's speak to what I do. And then the difference of that will shine. You know, I'm kind of waiting. I think at some point we'll get more pushback from the broader industry. I think there's there's more opportunity than anything. There's more opportunity for us just to grow and claim market share and get into more and more mainstream channels. That's what's exciting. I'm also really excited to expand our supply chain. You know, we're expanding beyond our own farm. We're beginning to, to effectively certify other farms as Belcampo Pipeline. And that's been amazing as well. Because that's also when I can become a broader agent of change and support other firms with my marketing and our customer base gets at, I mean, that to me is like the win-win. I would, it's cool that I do 30,000 acres, but man, the day when we have like a quarter million acres that we've converted to regenerative, that's going to be magical, right? So there's a lot of potential. I see more of that potential right now than I see the challenges from the other side. Yeah, that's huge. Okay, that's an exciting development I didn't know about. And I appreciate you talking about this too, because I tend to, I have like this one pessimistic question that I ask everybody. I can't help it. It's like this little part of my heart where I ask people who are doing things like what you're doing. And I'm like, do you sometimes just feel like either what's the point? Because we've got this weird us against them kind of environment in the media and even on social media where everyone can have a voice where people just sort of double down on their own opinions, right? Like you see like the joke. Rogan interview where it's this person versus this person. They're having a debate and you read the comments, which I know you shouldn't read the comments, but you read the comments and the, half of the people are like, this guy's the smartest and he's the best and that person's an idiot. And then the other, the other half are saying, well, no, that person's obviously an idiot. This guy won. And sometimes I just feel, I feel defeated by it because I, I feel like we're either preaching to our own choir who already believes in what we do or already agrees with what we do. And there's no chance of reaching the people who don't already believe in what we do. And I think that, you know, speaking to what you were saying, where you're kind of like, I'm not even really focusing on what the other people are doing. I'm focusing on what I'm doing. I feel like we could all take a lesson from that because I've noticed, and maybe I've noticed more in quarantine times, and we can talk about that a little bit right now. I don't want to talk about it too much or dwell on the negativity, but I see that this conversation around how to deal with the current situation that we're in. And there's some really loud voices in our sort of health and wellness world that are speaking, I think, accurately to the idea that this is very directly related to chronic disease and the issues that we're facing in our country. But they're speaking about it in such an adversarial, aggressive way. I've had to mute some people that I really respect because I'm like, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, I agree with you. And it's like, don't, you know, people who read that, who have family members dying, you know, like that's not going to bring any people over to our side, right? But we all, Um, we also know just from a like psychology standpoint that if we're talking about whether we're talking about losing weight or we're talking about eating differently or we're talking about anything that shaming people and telling them they're stupid never changes people. No one changes from a position of either defensiveness or shame or self-loathing. It's like so many of these people, it's like they almost just want to prove that they're right rather than help people. Like I told you, like I told you so, you know, and it's like, I'm like, I agree with what you're saying. And I still think you're being obnoxious and terrible. And I just, I I don't know why that's, it seems like it's coming out more right now for some reason. Maybe it's the fear-based situation that we're in, but it just, it makes me sad. Funny moment. It's a funny moment, but you know, 
From my perspective, really nothing good comes from reflecting on your competition. Yeah. Just nothing good comes of it. Early on in my company, there was always, I, whenever I'd have, we'd do team meetings, I'd be like, what's this person doing? What's that person doing? And I used to pay attention. And after a while, it's like, don't, this long game, focus on what you're doing and do that well. Don't Google your competition, look at their Instagram. I mean, if you need to, for some technical reason, do it. But like, it's like how nothing good comes from Googling your ex. There's certain things that you just know you're going down a bad rabbit hole and just don't do it. Don't think about that. And don't focus on that. Yeah. And also negative publicity in general, negative messages. I'm in the midst of seeing my biggest like superficially competitors. The whole meat supply system is blowing up right now. I mean, in a bad way. And you see nothing on our feed or my feed about the meat plants. Like I might post a couple of links to articles that I think are particularly insightful, but nothing. And that's really by design. Like there's just no win in celebrating anybody else's demise because it just comes back. It just comes back and not in like some woo woo, like karmic way. It's like literally it will come back and somebody then will hold you to an unfair standard in a future point. So from my perspective, it's, you know, it's not even just about what to do as a brand, but just as a, just on a humanity basis, it's like focus on positive. Don't think about your competition. Focus on what you do well. This morning we did that. We were on the news a bunch of times, live news on Fox in, in LA. And one of our butchers did the interview and people always ask, what do you think about Tyson? He's like, I, you know, what we coached him on, what he did amazing on is like, I have no idea what they do, but here's what we do. Yeah, you know that opportunity used everything like this as an opportunity, and I, I would say that to these health influencers that are going really for the jugular, it's like don't use this as an opportunity to point out their flaws. Use this as an opportunity to highlight your strengths. Yes, like yeah. saying I told you that that you know obesity was an indicator of COVID. It's like here's some more benefits of my radical program mm-hmm. around it. That's the way to find the win, find the yes. And it's I think it's alienating, and I think it's driving even further a divide among people. And I, I totally agree. But in general, it's like just nothing good comes from pointing out flaws in your competition. That's true. And nothing good comes from any type of like negative sharing of a negative story from just a business perspective and a life perspective. It's just how it's like in anything too, you coach the color, you coach yourself on the color of your own glasses. You know, if you're wearing rose colored glasses, it's not because somebody put them on your face, it's because you decided to put those on, right? You have to embrace things with that type of positivity. Unless, of course, your industry is you're a whatever type of lawyer. Or something. <laughs> I'm sure there's some places. But I think, you know, like positivity and pushing things through, yeah. it's, it's a good opportunity. You know, I do think that there's so many aspects of coronavirus, like in my own business, it's highlighted for me in black and white stuff that like, wow, that had huge potential and I had no idea. And man, I suspected that that was a dog of an idea or of a location or of a division. And it's totally a dog. There's a black and white around decisions and viability in this moment. That's amazing. It's a blessing. It's a huge opportunity for growth. If you're prepared to look at the hard decisions you have to make, COVID will show you what they are in your life and in your business. So you can lean into what's working and be comfortable walking away from what's not. Now's a great time to do it. So there's huge blessings for us in this time, although it's a time of massive struggle. But I think that the the opportunity for the wellness movement to walk into it with positivity and to, because, you know, coming out of this, there's going to be millions upon millions of people who are going to think differently about their health. Absolutely. Yeah. So what are some of the ways, I mean, you can't speak probably too specifically to business plans and things like that, but what are some of the things that you're sort of pivoting on or adjusting to or changing during this time? Totally. I mean, the coolest thing for me about what's happened in COVID is that we've gotten so much more utilization of our own app. Sounds like kind of a minor thing, but on the food delivery platform, so Caviar and DoorDash and stuff, I pay a huge percentage. 
30% of every dollar you spend with my company goes to them. Mm. And then I don't know if it's the information about that getting into the broader mainstream or the fact we did free delivery, but now like close to 40% of all the transactions in my company are through my own app. So I can connect directly with consumers. We, it's just a better, it's amazing for me. And to have that shift happen in a month, going from 4% to close to 40%, I don't know how much I would have had to spend in marketing dollars to achieve that. So, and what I see from that is like the insights for me and my business is that people are getting more comfortable with new technology, mm-hmm. trying new technology, and they're ready to like do some things. I mean, I think about it, we've all had a lot of things that we've tried for the first time this month that we thought would just never, ever happen. I think a lot of these habits are going to stick. So for me, the, the app growth and people willing to connect directly with our company is one huge one. And then another one is just the e-commerce growth and people being comfortable getting a very, or, or I mean, it's expensive mm-hmm. for me. You know, it's, it's like 10% higher than your grocery store organic option. People spending money, getting the stuff delivered online, being comfortable with that. We've seen huge utilization of that function in the company. So that's been really cool. And then also butcher shops have been blowing up. We've been doing great in our butcher shops. Everything is really focused on worker safety from day one. So it's like we have the plexiglass shield. You've had masks and gloves from early on. So it's like I think there's a sense of like comfort and security. But that's been really cool to see. So lots of things that I kind of loved about the company personally but never seen the kind of utilization on have come into their own. So we're in a position right now with – you know, such a high utilization on our app. It's like in any people listening in California, get on the app because it's free delivery. We do all the grocery items. So you can get two chickens and some bone broth and bacon and then a hamburger for dinner and a roast chicken for tomorrow delivered for free. And that's a really neat, great service. And I'm very proud to provide for families in this time. Really kind of found some feet, which is terrific. Yeah, it's very cool. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people, health conscious and otherwise, who are saying, you know, I've spent more, I'm spending more on groceries than I ever have in my life. I'm also spending more time on preparing food and making food and just sitting and enjoying it. And I have to say, as somebody who always cares about food quality and food is like one of the greatest joys of my life, I am eating like the most delicious meals ever yeah. stuck in my house. <laughs> like part of it is the attention that you're you're taking and the care that you're putting into it. But there's also something about this slowing down, this collective slowing down and just paying more attention to things and not rushing through things because I'm as guilty as everybody else of like inhaling my food while I'm on my phone a lot yeah. because that's just how we live these days. But trying to really kind of work against that and like just prepare your food and like get the right ingredients and sit down and eat it and look at it and smell it. And I just feel yeah. like every night eating dinner is like the highlight of my day and I love it yeah. and it makes me so happy. So I mean, yeah, you, you got to see the silver linings in a lot of these things. But it's also neat to see people really getting concerned about food waste. Like that yeah. thing that happened for a lot of people emotionally right when COVID hit was like, oh my God, don't throw that away. I was telling my kids that like, do not throw that. Do not take that if you're not going to eat it. You know, and I used to be more blase about that. And somehow the shortages and the panic buying, it got me just like, I also love I'm planning more and being more thoughtful. Like there's no such thing as like, oh yeah, I'll just run down to the store and get it in two minutes or I'll get it prime now. What we have in my fridge is what we're eating for this. And if we're shopping for the week and yeah. we're eating all, like there's nothing that I'm like, oh, there's my farmer's market regret drawer yeah. right like there we go somewhere so it, that's really amazing and and I feel good about those choices now I feel yeah. really good about that's a big big win I also love like this you bring up a good point around slowing down you know right before we got on this I made myself a, you know some food and set up my garden and ate it and it's like when would I have taken 10 minutes to do that midday stop 
eat good food, hang out with my son, enjoy this, the outside. Those are some really great things that are happening. But I, the broader context is challenging and some of these little shifts. So I think the, you know, the restaurant industry has gotten overly inflated. And it's not just the prices. I mean, I also think as a restaurant owner, part owner, the rents that we were being pitched were unachievable for new real estate. And it's like the whole industry kind of got this inflated sense where it's like, there are these vanity projects, they're paying way too much for rent. They're operating on a tiny margin. They have just a couple weeks of cash in the bank. It's like, not a viable business model. Nobody should have to live with that amount of stress. And I know it from my community. I have so many people I know as restaurant operators who crush it for 30 years and don't have savings to retire on. And even though their restaurants were very successful. So it's like, it's not a viable industry. And I think there's some, these are painful times, but I hope that there are going to be some better shifts around landlords are going to need to realize that restaurants are more of an amenity and they need to be priced differently from a rent perspective if you want them to be around. Yeah, I hope a lot of these things are things we take out of it. Like you said, the sort of slowing down and paying attention and the food waste thing like that, wanting to not waste half of what we buy should be something we all think about all the time, not just now. Okay, so I want to ask you one more question. I don't want to keep you all day, although I definitely could. And I know that this is different because of the times that we're in and maybe the future of this is a little bit uncertain, but I thought one of the really cool things that you guys do are these meat camps, like these events that you have at the farm. Can you talk a little bit about like what those are and how they work and hopefully if there's going to be some in the future so that I can come? Yes, you're invited. <laughs> oh, I guess. So the meat camps, I started them back in 2014 because I started them initially for women because I love to grill and do wood fire grilling. And people were always asking me like, how, women were like, how did you learn how to do that? And I explained, you know, my whole journey on that. But I was kind of, I realized that women didn't understand how to grill and were afraid of the grill. So I thought it'd be fun to create a nice environment. Now that lasted for maybe one or two camps. And then it became just open. And because I realized that the skills we were teaching just had a much broader applicability. Mm -hmm. And my goal is to get people aware of the kind of intuitive parameters for good cooking. So that you come out of that event with a little bit of a basis in like, here's how I know when my steak is done. Here's how I know when my chicken is safe. Here's how I take a bone out of something, anything, mm -hmm. small bone, you know, here's how I take a drumstick off. Here's how I sharpen a knife. You know, it's like kind of basic stuff, but then it's also an opt in, you know, a lot of people come and just chill out. It's a beautiful farm. It smells amazing. It's the base of Mount Shasta. It's really heaven on earth. It's just a great place to be. So a lot of people come there just to decompress. You know, typically the camps are three days long and really two nights. You get there one evening, do a full day of work the next day. And then you say, do a second dinner. And then the next morning you depart or midday you depart. So it's really, you know, it's like it's kind of solid day and a half of education with like a half day of fun in it. And we also have a gorgeous natural cold plunge and hot springs, just about a 10 minute drive from the farm. So we put that in, people go and do, it's like a snow melt stream. You can do ice baths in and then there's wood fire sauna, not on our property, but right in a little adjacent farm. And so there's really, it's kind of just a nice place to hang out. Spend a, a couple days. Yeah. Also, you know, the thing I, I love is just sharing with people that livestock ranching can look like this. I love that. Is it, is it a lot of like corporate retreats? Like how many people can come on one retreat? Is it just like groups of people that come together or do strangers come together and do this stuff? It's, it's all different types of things. We are 
cap the meat camps themselves at 24 because of the education component. Because we actually break a, we cut up a half a cow. It's as hands-on as you want it to be, but it's pretty amazing. So that stuff is, lends itself to smaller groups. But we do do retreats of up to 80 people, weddings, et cetera, as well. So all with our own meats. And we've got luxury kind of camping platform tents out in the orchard there as well. So it's, it's just gorgeous. We've got accommodations on the farm, you know, all the facilities and everything that you need. There's a big organic vegetable garden. So all the meals come off the garden and then from the, the ranch's meat. And it's just, it's fabulous. I love being up there for that. And we've got this great orchard with all the different stone fruits. So it's pretty magical. It's just nice to show people a way of life, like how things could be. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I really hope that that is, we're able to kind of do that sometime before too long. Yeah. Right now with how much of an issue there is with COVID and meat plants, we've shut down all visits to the farm and the butchery until really further notice, but probably we'll keep the September camps up. I'm assuming that by then there'll be a bit of a new normal, but I don't know at this point. I mean, it seems like a lot of things are changing, but I made that decision a week or two ago thinking it's not going to be July, even if it is July, given how important the supply chain is to my business's operation. Obviously, it is a supply chain operation. We have to keep that really as safe as possible. But we're doing some content right now, like on IGTV with farm visits and farm tours and butchery and that kind of thing, just to kind of offer a little bit of that. But hey, fingers crossed, Ashley, that we'll be able to get you there in September. Sounds so amazing. And it's funny, too, you touched on the idea of how sort of gendered grilling is like, and it's even more complicated by the fact that there's this other stereotype of like women being the the people who provide and make the food and are in the kitchen. And then but like this one subset, which is grilling red meat is like for dudes. And so I really appreciate that. You know, I read some some stuff about you and you know, you being a woman in an industry that's largely male. And like, as much as I actually do love to talk about stuff like that, and I love to obviously get successful and strong and intelligent women on this podcast to talk about the stuff that they're doing. Like I almost want this to not have to be part of the conversation. I just want it to be like, you're an authority in this because you've done the work and you're in it and you know it. And like, do we have to talk about how you're a woman too? You know what I mean? Like, I just want that to not have to be part of the conversation all the time. Yeah. People do ask me a lot about that. And it's been interesting. My company's growth has been really independent of the broader meat system, you know, we've had our own supply chain. So I haven't really, you know, ever had much to do with the other meat industry folks because we're selling our own product, right? So it's an interesting, it is a big deal in some ways. You know, I I definitely think I, I probably, if anything, some of my, you know, not notoriety, but some of the media attention around my company, people have felt like it was a little bit undeserved and had to do with me being a woman, you know, that's the sort of only negative stuff that I've heard. But again, it's been a privilege to be able to just kind of build the second reality to things. And I do think that in an, as I mentioned, you know, my goal is to act with integrity, be authentic and, and offer traceability. And so I think a female voice in that lends something to that. I think that there's definitely more of a, uh, there's people tend to assume more integrity with women in leadership. Um, So I hope that's a positive, but it's definitely a very male dominated industry. I'm really looking forward to when I raise capital or sell this company at some point, because I think that's going to be a real validation as well. You know, we are an outlier and some people think like, oh, you want to, you know, bring on capital partners and thing. And I actually say, yeah, because it's a validation point that's going to really extend the potential. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think this is a sign that maybe it's time that I, I give you back to your family. <laughs> but Anya, I really, really appreciate you taking this time. Like what you're doing is incredible and it's important. And I think that this is going to be really helpful for people. And I just, I appreciate you sharing and being transparent. Like you said, um, I'm super pumped to come out and go to a meet camp at some point. So before I let you go, so you're based. I'm quarantined in Canada right now, which is nice and safe. But I'm usually, when I'm in the States, I'm usually in New York. So I'm on the East Coast, but I'm always looking for opportunities to go to the West Coast. So that's no problem. I need to make sure that I send you meat too. Yes, please, please. So for everybody who's in the States, they can order, is it nationwide at this point? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So bellcampo.com, they go and check it out. You can make your order straight from there. Okay. If you want stories from the farm, et cetera, it's Belcampo Meat Co., and then my personal feed is focused on kind of meat-heavy recipes, and that's Anya Fernald. Awesome. Anya, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is awesome. Take care. That's all, folks. Thank you for being here. Definitely go give Anya a follow, as well as Belcampo. I love following Anya because she talks about everything I love on her Instagram. She shares workouts. She talks about organ meats. She talks about bone broth. She's always posting recipes and resources, cooking tips. So she is definitely a good follow. And while you're at it, go follow my friends at Ancestral Supplements. For those of you that I've already won over to the power of organ meats, but who aren't ready yet to eat the real thing, Ancestral has you covered because they make grass-fed desiccated organ meat capsules. And every organ you can think of is included. They have everything from liver to heart to trachea to thyroid to brain. I could just list body parts, animal parts. They've got it. I use them consistently when I'm not eating the real thing. I prefer to get it from like straight from the source and eat the actual organ meats. But when I can't or when it's not practical or when I'm traveling, I take these really consistently. And I I honestly credit this product largely to, knock on wood, my strong immune system and overall health because I've been taking these guys' products for a couple years now and I haven't been sick. So go to ancestralsupplements.com. I'll put all the links and info in the show notes. Use the code MUSCLEMAVEN for a discount. I personally would recommend starting with their beef organs blend because you get a good bang for your buck there or the beef liver because as we all know, liver is the nutritional powerhouse and that's probably the most nutrient dense place to start. But like I said, they've got lots of different options. So you can go to the website, learn a little bit more, do some browsing. If you have any questions about their stuff, you can either reach out to me I'm always happy to answer any questions, or you can send them a message directly. They're super responsive and happy to answer your questions. So go check out those guys. Remember, the code is always Muscle Maven. Just put Muscle Maven in any website you're trying to buy stuff. You might get a discount. It's worth a shot. All right. On that note, I hope you're subscribed so that you don't miss my new episodes that are coming out every Tuesday. Please, as always, send me a note with any feedback you have. All my contact info is in the show notes. And that's it. Have a great day, everybody, and thank you for listening. Thank you.